Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Evan Kelsey. Evan's been in sales for about the last 15 years. He's been a veteran of startups, scale-ups and exits. He's gone from working at LinkedIn when they were a thousand employees through the Microsoft takeover, helped grow businesses up to 300 employees and then be taken over by uh, private equity and worked with companies from dozens to hundreds. So we're going to look at um, how he's gone through that cycle from dozens to hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands and looking at the differences that you go through at those different stages. We're going to look at something really important as well, which is that you're going to start exploring what you can control and what you have to take ownership for. We're going to highlight areas that if you bother uh, to make that investment, you'll start to see your performance improve significantly and it will compound over time. Don't, and you'll watch other people accelerate in their careers and then you'll wonder why not you. And you'll probably be one of those better middle managers who then takes it out on the poor young ones. So without any further ado, Evan, welcome. Marcus, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Would you mind uh, giving us a little bit on your history and just filling in the gaps that I missed? Sure. I'm a Midwesterner at heart. I lived in New York. I grew up in Indianapolis, went to Purdue and graduated from, from college working for a, a company called uh, Vault.com, which was essentially Glassdoor before Glassdoor.com. Then from there, moved on in New York, working for LinkedIn and uh, had a fantastic ride there as an individual contributor, riding, rising up the, the IC ranks and moved out to San Francisco, uh, got married, had twin boys, moved back and got on with a company that I was previously with called Seismic, which is the, the world leader in sales enablement technology. Most recently, I've uh, decided to, to end my five-year you know, run with them and moving on to a, a new company specifically focused in the AI ML space that I'm very excited about here starting in, in April. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And um, tell me this. I mean, th there's obviously a huge amount of hype at the moment about AI and machine learning and so on. And it, it's difficult not to be wowed by the shiny new object. But we also have to bear in mind, it's just a tool at the moment. And it's more artificial and uh, less intelligence at the moment and more machine learning. So whilst it's incredible, what advice would you give to people as they're investigating this trend to make sure they're cutting through the noise and the fog and to see it for what it really is? I think there's a lot of, uh, as you said, there's a lot of hype and it's very much in the zeitgeist right now because of chat GPT. And I think what I tried to keep in mind as someone who treats the, the craft of selling very seriously is that there's a lot of hype that, uh, you know, this will be the end, the end of, of the seller as we know it. You know, there's a lot of research out there. Uh, one of the more, one more eye-opening things that I read during the pandemic was a study by McKinsey that, that showed that before the pandemic, B2B buyers were willing to spend upwards of uh, $500,000 or more on a purchase completely remotely out without touching a human. That, that, that percentage jumped from, uh, I think, a bit over 10% uh, before the pandemic to, to 35% uh, post-pandemic. And so whether that's, you know, a bunch of 
people in their their mid to late 30s and early 40s that are used to a lot of buying things without ever interacting with a human now just applying that that expectation to a b2b process i, I or, think part of it may be generational because my generation are, and older are analog natives and we've reluctantly learned to coexist with technology with varying degrees of reluctance and about 60 percent of middle management now are millennial and about 20, 30 percent are Gen Z. So they're quite used to buying in that way. My own coach's grandsons bought a house 2,000 miles away, completely online, never having set foot in it until he walked through the door for the first time long after the deposit had been paid. It's an all too common occurrence. And I, being of that generation, you know, on the older side, there are so many things in my life that where I'm I'm making fairly significant purchases without ever interacting with with a human. It's natural that you extend that you would extend that to a B2B process. However, the hype, I believe, is is only as good as the technology powering it. And I think what we're gonna what we're going to find is that sellers are able to be heavily augmented by these AI ML tools to really be able to provide a significant amount of uh, more value and advice and insight and no, you know, noise cancellation for their buyers throughout the process. Now, that's what the good ones are going to do. For those that don't, uh, I would say, don't embrace the power of the technology that's, that's available. As with any medium in any decade, they are going to be at a significant dif- disadvantage over time. It points to something that we were talking about in the green room, which was the fantastic advice of your CFO. So would you mind sharing that? The best piece of sales advice I have ever gotten uh, when people asked me was from a CFO. He was a CFO of a, of a health system and he was doing training for us. There came a moment where he wanted to lay, it, lay the brass tacks down and said, listen, you see who you sound like. If you, see, if you sound like me, you see me. If you don't sound like me, you get to see someone below me. As somebody who was uh, who had sold for a number of years, you know, at that moment, but had sold a lot of transactional run rate deals, and was trying to figure out how to get higher in my clients' organizations, how to provide value to those executives beyond just the attention getting, and and how to sell outsized deals to them. That was the you know the biggest light bulb moment. Was I cannot be a seller anymore. I have to be a student of business. I have to be a business advisor uh, to my to my clients. And I think at the same moment there was this Cambrian explosion of you know thank God for podcasting where <laughs> uh, you have you have in any industry in any size of company uh, in in almost any role you have. Uh, hundreds, if not thousands of executives that you can hear on interviews talk about their company, what they're doing, what mean, what's meaningful to them, and uh, hear how they, how they think about the world. And that's something that somebody who was a, who was a seller in 2002 didn't have, at their, didn't have at their disposal. We used to have to go to libraries. Yeah. I mean, maybe the occasional interview in, in a trade magazine. Yeah. Right. But even that's heavily filtered. This is <laughs> the the this is 
all the executives, you know, uh, what Andy Warhol said, everybody has their 15 minutes of fame. Like every executive at some point is going to get interviewed for any company of note. And even those, and even companies that aren't of note. So there, there's essentially, you know, no excuse for sellers today to really throw themselves into being business, business advisors to their clients. Well, you've touched on something really very important here because we talked about it in the green room again. We talked about this activity blindness where people are encouraged to work dumber at scale. And the, one of the things that I really fear, and you're already seeing this flurry of dreadful automation, and it's clearly not thought through because um, after three times of saying I'm really not interested, it's fairly clear that they're not interested either. And you're, you're going to block them very quickly because it's just frustrating to be inundated with this noise. And we're also seeing salespeople, because they have this mercenary transactional mentality, they're not looking beyond. And the net result is they are all terribly exposed. I don't think AI is going to replace sales altogether. But what it is going to do is it's going to remove the irrelevant ones. It's going to remove the ones that can be replaced by a robot. And if all you're doing is pumping out 1,000 or 10,000 emails a day to be spammed and blocked and get your email domain blacklisted, um, you're not really adding a lot of value. You can do that automatically. So those jobs, I think, are going to go. I think the really smart ones, and what I've gleaned from what you've been talking about, is you need to know how to use this stuff wisely in order to be better informed and of greater value to the people you need to sound like. And it is, you know, ChatGPT GPT in the old version was magnificent at this. Uh, the new version is quite a lot more fun. And mm -hmm. if you ask it the right questions, you can use it out quite significantly. The ones that are going to be prepared and create outsized value are the ones that are going to, to embrace the creativity and the non-linearness and the pattern matching that tools like, like you know, tools like a chat GPT, uh, of which there, there are going to be many, how to utilize that to decrease the overwhelming amount of noise that are going to be in your buyer's worlds and to cut through that with, a, with the, you know, a well-researched value-based point of view that you can continue to beat the drum of throughout the entire process that aligns directly with the highest, you know, the, the highest ideals of the of the organization you're selling to. But too often, um, you know, and and this this would have been, uh, you know, if we were having this conversation a decade ago, we would have been having it about, oh, should we be texting our clients? Is that okay? You know, should we be using social media to interact with them? And to build our, our our expertise and our brands, you know, in every generation, there there's a set of tools that the smart people use that the dumb ones don't. There's more important than that. They may even be using the same tools, but the smart ones use them well, and they use them to serve the customer instead of trying to control the sale, and instead of acting as a very badly disguised audit function for people who are paranoid about not being in control. Now, now having said all that, uh, as, as a company grows in size, you know, if I'm a seller working for that company, I've seen this at pretty much every company I've ever been at, the job of 
the, the executives and operations to find out what's the maximum capacity of accounts and load and increased quota that they can give to their selling force mm. to be able to output you know the right numbers that they're they're looking for so if you want to push you know if you're going to be on cruise control you will get piled on and piled on and piled on more and more i see that too often amongst you know selling you know good sellers that i know that are not getting in front of that problem by being far more creative with how they approach things and consuming enough information to where they can credibly speak like the people, you know, the people at the highest levels they're trying to sell to. You touched on something which is, feeds very nicely into something Zach Seltz talks about, which is brilliant, which is it's your job to enter your prospect's workflow in a unique and original way um, that makes them prick up their ears and think, you know, never heard that from before, never thought of it before. No one else has come to me with this. I need to find out more. That's the purpose of your initial points of contact. It's to create that curiosity to think, ah, how do I get invited in? I, I talked to uh, my pal, Justin Michael. Creating a, a good headline and a decent graphic is enough for someone to spontaneously book a meeting. You don't have to give them the baby, the bathwater, and war and peace. And what yeah. you need to do is get them to engage. And then you've got to help them lower their perceived risk. And you do that by helping remove uncertainty. Because uncertainty is the thing that creates panic and uh, people going into deep catastrophe mode. Because in the presence of uncertainty, the brain goes to the worst case scenario. Now, that's half of all closed last deals. Yep. And you don't have the time to have those conversations if you're running around after 200 or 600 or 2,000 accounts. It's insane. You won't be able to. And the reality is, is that, that the, the de-risking, that component, is really the driving factor in today's selling world. And those that are, that are packaging that de-risk in, in a novel way. Those are the ones who are cutting through the noise. And initially, you know, in, in the, the first interaction, of course, but those who uh, have a strategy for keeping it novel throughout the buying process, those are the ones I see, gain, you know, sell, you know, sell outsized deals consistently and ones to non-ICP customers consistently. And uh, it's, it's incredible to watch. But they keep this, you know, sense of uh, creativity and novelty uh, in the back backs of their minds, so that they can be memorable. Because they they know what, what you and I know, which is, but the part of the brain that makes decisions doesn't understand language, mm -hmm. and so that decision making process is based on feeling. Mm -hmm. Very very valid point. So, how do you get a leadership team that is obsessed? with data and metrics and financials and lagging indicators that really don't make a whole heap of difference to the effective running of a sales and marketing operation that feeds everything in the business. So you've got this new role. I'm guessing you're going to have to then sell that whole concept to people of, you know, look here at the causes 
not here at the symptom. How do you put that proposition together using this technology to really know the industry, the competitive landscape um, that you operate in, that your customer operates in, and the people aspect so that you can put together a really powerful hypothesis? Because that, to me, is one of the best things that this technology can give us immediately. Absolutely. For me, it goes back to the most important part of the selling process, which, you know, if you'd asked me five, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have said it, but the most important part is not the external sale, it's the internal sale. <laughs> and understanding that you have, you know, from a what you said before of, of creating a credible, defendable, drivable point of view, that comes from inside your company in many cases to start. When you're joining a company, your job is to be a sponge for all of the subject matter experts and domain experts at your company to, you know, cr cr to get to gather that gallon of sour mash so that you as a seller can distill it into that shot of pure whiskey and to continuously do it. And part of the internal selling is talking to customer, you know, talking or listening to customers of yours who are not yours, who you have sold, you know, the company have sold previously. Thank God for like call recording tools. Everybody's onboarding should be short circuited because you're now able to listen in on what works for the customers, uh, why are they buying, and at what, you know, for, for a managerial level, why, why are they buying? For a VP level, why are they buying? For a C-suite level, why are they buying? If, if you're lucky enough to have all those things at your disposal, otherwise you're, you're, giving, you're giving your sellers, you know, a relative blank sheet of paper with a lot of, I'd say, you know, features and functions about the technology on it mm -hmm. that doesn't allow them to cre create a value-based narrative. Okay, big, big bomb. What frustrates me is the amount of time and effort that organizations obsess about trying to constrain salespeople within the playbook, but forgetting that the customer isn't um, a student of the playbook, doesn't follow the playbook, certainly doesn't follow your script. Um, and most training, most of the enablement that I see going on is about trying to control the behavior instead of giving people contextual opportunities to test a thesis and learn how to use a particular question appropriately. Because the, the technique should not be a weapon. It should be a shield. Um, mm -hmm. It should be a way of protecting the customer from the worst excesses of your own shareholders and your own management. It should be a way of helping them advance their thinking, uh, not so that you can report BANT statistics back to your leadership. Now, putting someone through a BANT qualification is offensive as a buyer. And how many times do we have to beat our head against the wall uh, and then keep blaming the wall for our headache. Well, the it's a pro. I mean, it's it's classically a product of the Peter principle and how many executives in the in sales organizations are trying to boil their strategy and their their methodology down into the simplest of terms to then be able to showcase that to uh, to their board members or, or their own C-suite executives. And instead, 
not putting the emphasis on you know the business education industry or or kind of sector specific education that these that these salespeople need and that kind of base level of knowledge so that uh, you can encourage them to be creative and and place a lot of little bets around what types of value messages work in what situations and then have the tooling uh, in place to be able to capture what's working and what's not within those value messages. And, and so you can democratize those. As you said, if if you're going to far too often, uh, the enablement of, of that selling force is focused on getting everyone to say the same message at the same time. Hmm. When the reality is, is that the best, the best salespeople never say that message at your company. Hmm. They come up with their own methodology based on what their own knowledge and experience and and the subject matter experts they talk to and the clientele that they talk to and they place a bunch of little bets and then they see what bubbles up to the surface so we're trying to get leadership to recognize that there are some shifts coming in terms of buyer preferences and attitudes towards sellers the expectations that they have uh, in terms of the relationships that they're going to have from the people uh, from whom they buy. Uh, one area that I am absolutely convinced is going to uh, be a, a significant shift is the explosion of the partners and uh, the ecosystem space, because tech is so complex and so sophisticated now. And you know, just for an email, you might have 20 different vendors. Uh, and for security, you might have another 25. And you know, for sales enablement, um, average is around 17 different tools. Sure. It's insane. So you're going to have to work with partners if you want to get to the end customer. Um, but direct sellers and uh, who've then ended up in leadership don't really do this play nicely with others shtick. They um, zero sum. Yeah. So how do we get past this? Because if they want their businesses to survive, they're going to have to adapt to and meet customers where they want to be met. Because the more you try and squeeze them, they've got ubiquity of choice now. It's not like they can't just go onto the internet and pick up 150 different other vendors that sell pretty much the same shit you do. The, the Those that un, don't understand the reality, which is what we're looking at here in the 2020s is that the essentially the cost to start a point solution for any particular problem will be zero will be very close to zero and so in the past in the past you know you you flash back even 10 years 20 years the you had to have some level of capital to be able to create a a significant point solution for to to be able to sell against you know some other competitors platform that cost is going is essentially going to, to boil down to close to zero. And therefore, there will continue to be in any industry, in any, you know, any solution set, a ton of, of new players, new vendors who are trying to be specialized in, in, in niche areas of point solutions. And so if you're looking at this kind of continuous Cambrian explosion of tools and, and potential partners in your industry, and you're looking at it through the lens of they're all coming after my business, hmm. I like, I want to compete against you. I will go work for the, I will go work for your direct competitor and I, and I will kick your ass hmm. because it is not a zero sum game. And, and in so many industries, the rising tide lifts all boats and unlocks 
conti continuously unlocks more and more budget of that entire client base over time. The idea that you, you know, and I, I, I also, I see this far too often I, in, in the company I previously worked for, there were players in our space who did not, who were actively not playing well with others. And over time, uh, the, the, the ecosystem shut them out mm. and by shutting them out, there was a whole cascade of problems that, that got caused for them. Clearly there's always going to be a front frenemy type of relationship in any industry with certain players, certain competitors of yours, or certain point solutions that complement but may soon overtake some solution of yours. Um, but it, it drives a level of, of, uh, of, uh, you know, emphasis and, and fierce, fierce focus on what is your core business? What is your core value? And how, how can you continuously get more value out of that core? And otherwise, you know, the, the, the idea that you're going to be able to be super successful as a plat, as a platform, uh, as growing, growing from a point solution set into a platform, it does work for, for some. But in the 2020s, it's going to be a lot harder. The thing that I'm seeing, and almost every, no, every instance, where I'm seeing it being done with the customer's best interest first, everybody seems to be winning. You, you move forward faster. Out of three attempts to book meetings with my ecosystem, three of them booked, and we've had uh, 11... 18 direct interactions with people in large prospect organizations that all of those partners would want to sell to. Then there were nine, 11 referrals that came off the back. Now, what baffles me is when we try and do this cold, direct, through the heavy lift and through brute force, you might have a 3% if you are exceptionally good. But 97% of your effort is utterly wasted. To my mind, there has to be a better way. You know, I, I'm, I remember seeing a wonderful cartoon A.A. Milne had produced of Christopher Robin dragging Edward Bear down the steps by his arm or by, by a leg. And his head goes bumpity, bumpity, bump as it hits every step on the way. And he, Edward Bear thinks, there must be a better way to go downstairs. And <laughs> I just wonder... How can you keep going for the last decade and a half, hammering out this nonsense that sales is a numbers game, when if you took a step back, you'd make 64 times more profit. You wouldn't burn people out, so you wouldn't have to keep turning people over and incurring the single highest hidden cost in your business, which is wrong hires. And the second highest hidden cost in your business, which is a hidden cost to pursuit, and the third and fourth, which are hidden cost of RFPs and discounting. Why would you create the conditions for all of those to be the norm? You're touching upon that view from almost from a, a sales management's perspective. I think of also as a, as a CEO of any company, your job is to maximize the profit while minimizing the cost. And a selling force is very, very expensive. And a bad sales force is, yeah. Yes, correct. And <laughs> and and most, most CEOs. <laughs> yeah, sorry, go ahead. And worse, a badly led one. Because if you've got good individual contributors who are badly managed and badly led, 
it's just going to end up in a bad place because you'll end up buying a lot of bad business. Too often in the technology industry, that those those founders, those CEOs are they're brilliant engineers, they're technology people themselves, and they're inevitably going to try to. They inevitably must believe that the product that they created, that the that the go-to-market organization, probably selling organization in particular, is is a means to an end. So inevitably, in the, in the next five years, next decade, as more solutions are able to be sold through a partner ecosystem, there's going to be massive bets taken on that. And as more as as more solutions are able to be converted into an e-commerce experience to some degree, they are going to take that bet. Because the because the number one, you know, we both know the number one cost to a technology company is talent. Mm-hmm. Okay. So given that talent is so important and it's also very difficult in high demand, uh, difficult to recruit, difficult to keep, <laughs> why is it that so many management and leadership practices are driven and intentionally so? to create the conditions of high stress and high tension that lead to burnout, that lead to turnover, and uh, lead to people operating suboptimally. Um, Because what we also know is when the brain is under stress, the prefrontal cortex switches off. And the last thing we want is a scared monkey or a pissed off snake as representing our business to that nice calm amygdala of our prospects. So why why would we keep creating the conditions that make our salespeople behave poorly? Beyond growth expectations by by your investors? (laughs) But but again, if you're an investor, surely the question has to go through your head. Is there a better way so I make more money for less effort? What, What if I wasn't creating this horrible environment where people feel the need to give up on being a manager um, because it's so much easier just being an IC. I I, I resemble that statement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. So we see the evidence, but people seem dumb as fuck, basically, because they keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. That is Einstein's definition of insanity, if I recall correctly. So how do we stop it? There's one factor that I've been thinking about that is changing over the past, you know, that that over the past 20 years, we've we if you think about the entire go-to-market organization, and if you flash back 20 years ago, the tooling available to a head of marketing started to explode. And the the ability to demonstrate your organization's value in some metric way started becoming very, very real. And so I think a lot of that, a lot of the power, uh, quote unquote, between the head of sales and the head of marketing um, was over-indexed on a head of marketing. And I think that was kind of a, a promise because of the tooling that that uh, has not been delivered over the past you know, 10 years. And I think a lot of C-suite executives are coming to that realization. And that's why you see, you know, the, the CMO is the highest turnover um, you know, the short, the shortest lifespan of any, any of the executives. Um, now I think over the next 10 years, as we actually have some of, some of the tooling and some of the, and, and a pretty large data set now that you can gather around what is the optimal behavior for a selling force 
to be able to extract the most revenue from them. And a part of that is the, you know, the health and wellness and, and well-being of that selling force that you're going to see, I think, some, some level of shift to be more reasonable and some of that power go, you know, shift from the budget that was starving sales of resources because it was going to marketing. Uh, now, some of that budget is being headed over to the sales organization to be able to enable. Well, th- th- this raises some really interesting questions because my my view on this is that um, the customer's become a forgotten afterthought at the end of this long chain of abuse. And we need to put them right at the heart. And around them, we need to have our partners because the partners are the ones that have these relationships that last for years or decades. And they've got a bigger picture view than any individual vendor. The vendor's function is to help the partner to sell more of what the partner wants to sell more of. When we start doing this in organizations, it's fascinating because they start out, well, we'll give them 10% or 30%. No one gives a damn about your shitty commission. Um, Mm -hmm. But if you can help me 5X my deal size uh, to all of my existing customers and get them to sign up for a five-year or 10-year deal, you definitely got my attention. And you'll have the attention of my board and my investors. So this then raises the next question because I don't think that a lot of salespeople spend anywhere near enough time becoming educated in business at all. They talk about products and they talk about their company and some of them might be able to do a little bit of pain by number juggling, but they don't understand the moving parts. How how do we get salespeople and managers to really appreciate what it's like to be the customer and think as the customer? There's going to be a lot of people that if we have this conversation five years from now, we're going to be complaining about the same issues. The reality is that it's led by the people who are looking up at the people who are uh, at the top sellers of the organization and, and thinking, what are they doing, right? And not everybody does that. Uh, not everybody does that in earnest and in good faith. And the reality is, is that because there is more information out there than there has ever been in the history of, you know, of humanity about how executives think and how to and how how to speak to them and how to persuade them and how how to align what you're doing to what they want. Just as importantly to your point, how to align what they want and what you're and what you're offering to what the partner wants, who's who has the ear of the executive. Everything everything's out there uh, now. Right. So what you've essentially touched on is the interconnectedness of all of this and the recognition that we are dealing with wicked problems that are interconnected. To my mind, this myopia, this short-sighted perspective when it comes to setting target, looking at forecast, looking at pipeline. And I've been working with a client for about six months. And six months ago, we got him to shift the uh, the sales team's focus from short-term to medium-term pipeline. Mm -hmm. Net result is, in six months, they've gone from about 60% of them hitting quota to every one of them overachieving quota. And they have choice in the pipeline and they're securing deal after deal on an almost daily basis. They've not had a new product in eight years. I bet bet any turnover has gone down, uh, any regrettable turnover has gone down too. No, no, none. The people are getting promoted and he's created succession by doing this. And um, they're not allowed to put customers under any pressure. When um, his previous boss came, he was off uh, for a few weeks on leave. When he came back, 
he'd been putting them under pressure and they'd all been pushing back. Uh, now he's back. None of that's allowed. And that result is the customers are coming to them. They're referring them. It doesn't take much to just be more compassionate and kinder and more humane. But for some reason, that's not in business culture. How do we get it back? Was it, I guess my, you know, I asked the devil's advocate question of was for, for, for the majority of businesses and selling organizations, was it ever there? It probably never was, but uh, okay, fair point. How, how do we bring it? Well, it, actually it was. Think of the word company. What is its origin? Enlighten me. It comes from the French with bread. You have companion, com, with, pain, bread. Okay, so you take break bread together. That's what company was. And company is about service. It's not about servitude and it's not serving yourself. Um, there's no shame in service. In fact, it's what human beings do really well because we're social primates. We derive enormous pleasure from gift giving and seeing someone else's face light up or we've helped someone. We said, it's just a thrill. Well, why are we not capitalizing on these human strengths? You know, cooperation. Cooperation is the thing that put us right to the top of the food chain. And instead, yep. we're trying to foster competition in our own teams. You said it yourself. The hardest sell is the internal one. Why are we making it bloody difficult? Now, having said all that, the, the, the companies that end up being, you know, the, top, the tops of their industries, you know, mm -hmm. I think there is not all of them. But I think there, many of them have at at some point in their in their existence had had that service mentality, and mm -hmm. the reality is is that the the service mentality, much like um, you know humans don't think long term very well, like having a, a f sole focus on your customers' needs is probably is the hardest thing in business mm -hmm. because of all the competing priorities and squeaky wheels, etc. and the reality is that most most companies and most selling organizations are not going to are not going to do that very well because of all the things that we talked about and the and the peter the, the peter principle itself the challenge for salespeople is to find is to is to identify the companies and the the types of roles within those companies that will allow you to be you know to be in service and create mutual you know mutual value for that relationship. How do we get it back in? You know, the reality is that it's not, most people will not have that mentality, but it is based on in incentives like you talked about. If you, if you change the incentive structure to be more relationship driven, longer term value co-creation driven, I don't know of a single instance where I've seen a company give more incentives on that side and, and lose. Again, very fair. If, if any of you are interested in this topic, I did a really, I've done three interesting podcasts on this. One with a guy called Dan Goodman from uh, True Commish, uh, really interesting. Another one with a guy called Alfie Cohn. Uh, he wrote a fabulous book called Punished by Rewards. And he's also written another one, I can't remember the title, on um, competition and its negative impact. Um, he's done meta studies of all the academic literature. Um, and then pulled, extracted um, the, the findings from there. Um, and then um, I did another one. I haven't published it yet on pricing, but again, very similar thinking, because if your pricing doesn't serve the customer 
and it's self-serving. You're going to be an obstacle to doing business. In the same way, I think one of the most important areas that we have to develop are our middle management layer, because by and large, their runway is, Evan, bad news, we just had to fire John. Good news, you're now the boss. Off you go, Sam. And that's your runway. That's just setting people up to fail. And now they're going to have five, eight people reporting to them. And that's a disaster. You forgot to mention the three open head count that they have to fill as well. As well, and cover that too, because they've got to be a player manager. Add all that together, and what you've got is essentially a recipe for disaster. What advice would you give to somebody starting their, they're a founder, and they're, they're facing all these choices. What should they say no to? Let's start with that. The consultants. <laughs> They should say they should say no to the to the belief that their product is walking on water, right. um, which is probably the hardest thing for a founder to do. Right? Inevitably, the dilemma that they're going to have is they're you know the game is rigged against them to some degree because inevitably, if they're in technology, they're going to be starting a company with a bunch of other technology experts who believe what they are creating has value or is transformational or whatever it is. And then they're bolting on either a product-left growth strategy on top of that. They're bolting on, you know, the, the revenue has to come later. And maybe in, in today's environment, it has to come a little earlier. But inevitably, the interest rates were go- are going to go down and we'll be back where we were in 2015. The reality is, is that the game is rigged against their, their understanding of how important the go-to-market organization is. Because their whole creation of the company, of, of the product suite, et cetera, up until the point to where they need go-to-market is all that they know. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden there becomes a very, and most technological founders, you know, they're not gonna have sales backgrounds. They're not gonna have people in their life that were sales leaders or elite sellers themselves that can explain this stuff. So the reality is that the, you know, the the in my job search, I was looking for, you know, a founding team that uh, was not wanting to be transactional with how they view the value of, of the selling organization. Uh, and hopefully I chose right. But the, <laughs> that, you know, if I'm giving advice to founders, that's my big advice, uh, is that you, are, you, have to under, you have to keep in the back of your head that the game is rigged against your understanding of how valuable the selling part is, you know, the go-to-market part is. The problem starts that... Uh, when you start thinking them of them as separate. From the customer's perspective, it's all one thing. Correct. And uh, if you're selling, but you can't depend on the operation to deliver, then your confidence is going to suffer, which will then start to affect your ability to sell and revenues and so on, and then jobs and whatever. Um, so I think one of the big areas that organizations really need to get fixed quickly is real cooperation across departments, and we forget our egos at the door. When we go into those meetings, I I remember interviewing Tom Shodorf, the first uh, interview I did for my Scale-Ups pod, and he said that when we go uh, into meetings, we have stand-up fights. I mean, it is really very heated, but there are boundaries, there are rules. We respect one another. It doesn't become personal, and we're focused on the outcome. And I think this is where things have gone horribly wrong because people are focused on um, the result of uh, hitting the valuation or meeting quota. The customer doesn't give a damn. 
They want to know, can you help me solve my problem? Are you going to help me move forward? And if I think you can, can I trust you to actually deliver? Because 80% of the sale, the buying process, the customer is thinking, what will go wrong? That's the fear of messing up. Yeah. I mean, fear, fear of messing up is one thing, um, but they're going through anticipated buyer's remorse. I mean, how insane is that? Because we as sellers have left them with some level of uncertainty because we didn't listen. We didn't ask the right questions. We were self-serving. What they need is a safe pair of hands. They want a guide. That's how they'll let you in. They've assumed that that buyer hasn't been burnt badly on a previous purchase, which most of them have. They all have. We, who, who hasn't made a bad purchase? Right. Well, and you touched upon another thing that is so critical in the success of organizations, I believe, which is dissent as a virtue. Yes. <gasps> yeah. Where, where, you know, uh, and, and, and the fostering of of the, the opposite view, right? And giving giving oxygen to that opposite, opposite view. And I think of Amazon's example of start with, you know, start with a press release for whatever the part, for whatever you want the outcome to be and, and work backwards from there. But they've, you know, they've got a culture self-professed, I've never worked there, of that it's very important to, to express the, the opposite view in, in critical decision-making. And, too many, too many times we're in uh, cultures where that view is is uh, is is suppressed, and it inevitably leads the the organization down a path where they have blinders on, or the emperor has no clothes, you know, et cetera, whatever metaphor you want to use. I, I noticed a really interesting observation, which is that when the founders lose focus on what they originally set the business up to do that's when it all starts to go horribly wrong. So when they um, you know, stop worrying about creating an amazing experience for their customer and solving uh, you know, the particular problem that they set up, and now they're worrying about raising their first uh, round or they're raising the next round or they're meeting the valuation target. And it's very easy as life takes over and the pressure from investors to get very distracted. So... We're coming to time now. Let's have a think about the best advice that you can give to people who are looking at these new technologies. They're thinking about where we should invest. How can you help them to make good investment decisions? What what are the criteria that they should be thinking about? And how should they weight them? Because it seems that so much technology has been bought out of fear looking over the fence and seeing that, you know, Bob's bought seismic, so I need to buy this, and then they bought that, and I've got to buy the other. And before you know it, you've just got this technology spaghetti that takes two and a half hours just to do your job. Yeah. Like I said, uh, you know, pr- previously, there, there's, because the cost to start a company to solve a particular issue is rapidly approaching zero, you have had over the past 10 years and are going to have more of snake-bitten buyers, Right. And a part of that is is on the buying side and their lack of thinking through the actual six long ongoing systemic success success of the program of whatever it is. And part of it is on the the companies themselves where they're putting a solution out there without the change management resources needed to actually make it work. The biggest buying advice for anybody is keeping and the hardest part is keeping a focus on 
a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, how is this program going to be successful? And thinking through all the tenants that that are going of governance to make that program successful and all the resources needed to make it successful. And if you know, if we're talking a, a little point solution widget, maybe you don't have to think that hard about it. Or if you're a in a, a job hopping type of role and you're not going to be there two years from now, then perhaps you don't need to think about it. But if you're focused on the long-term success of your company, just as much time needs to be spent on the governance, the change management, the the resourcing needed to make to maximize this this tool, which is all all it ends up being, versus just buying a shiny thing. That's where the part you know again. That's where the partners come in, because the Accentures, the Deloitte's of the world, they lick their chops when they see technologies being bought off the shelf and without a ton of support resources. They they inevitably wait for the crash. <laughs> So to summarize what I think I've heard you say today, you need to do your research so that you understand the world, the context of your buyers, their language. And when you put your hypothesis forward, it needs to be timely, relevant, and well thought through. Even if it's wrong, it needs to demonstrate that you've put thought into them and their business, the problems that they're really facing. And you'll stand out by doing that. Once you have that side of things um, oh, in parallel with that, you also need to work out how you're going to orchestrate and choreograph your internal machine. So you have to ensure that there are shared beliefs, clear, well-defined, unambiguous objectives and people know what their part is to play in the execution of them, the mechanics of how it's done is not going to be prescribed, but there will be frameworks and principles around which you build and scaffold. And then the behavior is the responsibility of the individuals and has to be then the environment has to be created so those individuals can do their best work and be protected from acts of idiocy from above and within. Is that a, a sales utopia? That sounds wonderful. It, listen, if, if a company can get half of that right, they will, they will kick ass. Yeah. Um, well, I'm uh, wildly optimistic because I've seen all of that possible uh, in one organization, but it does take brave leadership. Um, and it also takes... Uh, money behind the business that is willing to be patient for about six to 12 months. Um, yes. And that's a rocky period. So you need good diplomats on your team for that. 100%. And uh, you, the, the, the diplomatic skills is a whole <laughs> other area of the podcast that we could, we could delve <laughs> into. Well, we could do that for episode two. We call it the, you know, the, the buying, the buying of the time or the, you know, the, the giving of the rope. Uh, how do you do that well? Well, it, it's, it is a topic that um, will be of a great deal of interest, so you're very much invited back to have that conversation. Okay, what was your best mistake? My best mistake in my personal life was probably joining a fraternity, a particular fraternity in the college that I went to, in the university that I went to. Have you, have you seen the movie Animal House? Mm -hmm. It was very much that type of place. I was a wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, fresh person. And uh, fresh I believe that everyone with, was- With your math analogies. 
boy out of Indiana. You can't take Indiana, the boy. You know, I, 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 I accept my the accusation of an Opie Taylor face as well. Um, <laughs> I had a, an internship that summer where I was able to get people into the, the local concert venue. I took advantage of it for all of my fraternity brothers, uh, <laughs> thinking that they were gonna they were my best friends. The reality is is that that was the best education I ever got on how to identify jerks. <laughs> it was a PhD, and that's carried me through my entire life. I, I you know, my uh, personal life is curated to to uh, you know to to expel those people with animus, and you know. <laughs> Uh, the, that's probably, and the, and the best, and the best mistake I ever made in my personal life was getting fired from my second job as a 24 year old, being able to understand that what I thought the job was and the effort that I was putting into that job wasn't anywhere close to what it should be. Uh-huh. And it's driven, it, it's driven my hunger since then. Very interesting. Okay, anything that you would recommend people watch, read, listen to in order to raise their business acumen, gain um, some of the language of uh, the people that they sell to? Candidly, I had never visited, uh, I had always been deathly afraid of the investor relations section of a company's website up until 2018. In 2018, I was, lit, you know, I had just moved on uh, from LinkedIn to Seismic. I was living with my in-laws with, with two little ones and my wife. I knew my backup against, was up against the wall. This was one area I knew that the best people did, and I threw myself into it. And the reality was the financial education that I got, as a, even as just a layman, um, was incalculably valuable to my success uh, at, at, you know, at, at Seismic. In addition to that, there's a bunch of podcasts out there that are incredible interviews with investors talking about different sectors. And uh, one of my favorites is invest, invest like the best, but there's a whole host of them out there that really help you as a layman break down how financial professionals think, which ultimately will be the blocker of any deal that you do, and how executives think, because that's who they're interviewing, that's who they're interacting with, those are partners, you know, as you say, and it's how you learn how they talk about things. So. You know, that the financial literacy piece is incalculably valuable to the best salespeople that I know. Ian Koniak from Salesforce, 100 million in sales, absolutely um, makes that point. Jacques Shamas, who is the former CFO of Charles Schwab, of Standard & Poor's, of Pan Am, uh, he makes the point. Moed Amin, who's interviewed 583 CFOs, makes this point. In fact, Moed's YouTube channel, look up Proverbial Door on YouTube, and he's got over 100 videos going through the financial reports and accounts of publicly listed companies and uh, looking at whether they're on the up or the down, trying to help you understand how to read the financial statements and get the language. Make sure if you're serious about selling into the mid-market or into enterprise that you start really raising your game in terms of financial literacy. Evan, thank you so much. How can people get hold of you? Uh, LinkedIn's probably the best. Evan Kelsey uh, with an A-Y on LinkedIn. Excellent. Evan Kelsey, thank you. Thanks, Marcus. 
So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've found this useful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Leave us an honest review, one star, five stars, anything in between. And uh, if you want to get a hold of me and chat about coaching, then there's a link in the blurb and in the comments. I'm going to ask you some really uncomfortable questions. Just get used to the idea. It's not going to be that much fun to begin with, but it does get better, especially as you start seeing the results. And I'm not that, not quite as scary as I make out, I promise. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.